Welcome to the Pivoting Out of Education podcast, where hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard will share their stories of folks who have left campus-based positions in education and K-12 to leverage their skills in other contexts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average person holds 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 50. Educators, like Jamie and Tom, often enter their careers thinking they will stay in education forever, perhaps because they're trained to think that way, or perhaps it is hard to see other pathways. Both of your hosts pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they want to give back and support others trying to do the same. Thanks for listening in and enjoy today's episode of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Studdard. And here we are. We are at the end of our first season. And I have to say, it has been a joy to be able to work on this project with you, Tom, specifically. We've always had different ways of like sort of working together, but this has just been such a great collaborative project. And Certainly listeners probably don't know this, but we opted to record a large majority of season one all at the very beginning. And so we've kind of gotten to just see, uh, we didn't know how much traction there would be, if folks would be interested in what we had to share. And we have been overwhelmed with really, really positive feedback. And I feel like that's super reassuring to know that our time is being well spent. And and for folks that don't know this, really, this is a a volunteer gig for for Tom and I. While some podcasts can be revenue generating, you really have to have like 10,000 downloads a month. It's it's a pretty big thing to, to actually make money off a podcast or have sponsors, of course. And so we're dedicating our time. So it's it's affirming to know that it's it's been worthwhile. Yeah, um, anything Jamie, you want to add, Tom, before we talk more about this episode? Yeah, Jamie, I would just say one, for sure, I've I've absolutely loved being able to work on this project with you. Obviously, we have, you know, strong connections going back to our days, you know, in the beginning of our career in higher education, but also as we've we've grown and become close as both friends and and almost almost sort of family, uh, particularly as you've gone on and gotten married and had two little ones that I consider to be like my part-time nieces, especially when we are able to travel together. But, you know, I, I agree. This has been a really great experience for a couple reasons for me. One, and I think I've shared this with a, with a few folks who have reached out to us individually, but it's allowed me to have sort of one foot back in higher education. And, and I've always loved my time working in higher education. So it was it was fun to one reconnect with colleagues that you know either are still in higher education or have recently left, but also fun to sort of get to know folks who are interested in pivoting out and why they're interested in pivoting out. I think Jamie, you know this. I I was expecting us to maybe get about a hundred downloads of this in, uh, for the entire season, and to know that we're you know clearly in the thousands has been both rewarding but also the recognition that there's a need out there and and hopefully we're filling in a gap for folks who are looking to pivot. And I'm excited to see not only what season two holds, which by the way, we did not know if there would be a season two when we started this and clearly there will be now, but also to see what connections we continue to make and and, and where this goes and, and how we potentially branch out. So really excited and really thankful to not only you, Jamie, but all of our listeners as well. 
Absolutely. And um, with that, speaking of our listeners, so we have, we've fielded a lot of questions over this season of 20 episodes. So over the course of 20 weeks, Tom and I have actually served as a consultant for over 50 folks, mostly just meeting with people and giving them general advice, which this season we were able to do for free. We, we now realize like we might have to revisit what that's going to look like or somehow limit it because our time is limited. But we've also given a lot of resume critiques and such as well. But we've not necessarily met with everyone, but we've gotten a lot of questions. And so this is our wrap-up episode where we will review some questions that we get fairly regularly, either through our social media accounts or through our consultations. And we'll kind of just foreshadow some really cool things that are coming up for season two. So what we're going to do is I have prepared a list of questions that I've received that I'm going to ask Tom and he doesn't know what those questions are, which is really fun. I mean, it's fun until the fact that I say now Tom has also prepared questions for me (laughs) and I don't know what they are. So, you know, who knows how this is going to go, but I figure I, we just thought it would be more fun to surprise each other. So you all have to tell us if, if it was I am, good or not. I am looking forward to the surprise, but for those of you who I've either <laughs> talked with or know me, you know that I typically write out my answers to just about everything before you I do. speak. So. Like you legit write out like a, you like a paragraph scripts, which don't sound like it when you're speaking it, but yeah. Well, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. Good. So I'm, I'm a little bit on the petrified side, but we'll see how this goes. And uh, I, I, really, I did not have any trick questions. So <laughs> I think you're going to be good, but now okay. I kind of feel like I should have had some, but anyway, okay. <laughs> We're going to get started. So this is about resume writing, which Tom is like a plus wizard at doing. I don't know that it's your favorite thing in the world to do, but you do a great job at it. So uh, a common question I have received. So we sort of know, like, if you're going to revise your resume, what you should do is start from scratch, right? And you want it to be outcomes-based. And we have an episode that reviews that in fairly deep detail, as well as a blog that talks about that. But one of the common questions I've received, as well as I've even thought of myself, is what if you did a job like a residence hall coordinator position, and you're applying to be a learning designer, right? And so you're, of course, going to focus on training, and you want it to, you know, you want to show the outcomes and, and that sort of thing. But like, what about some of the other really important things that you did in that job? Like uh, the fact that you was were on call, right? That's like, that shows that you can handle crises, et cetera. What do you do with that? So do you, you know, it's, well, there's, it's twofold. One is if you've had jobs where some seemingly crucial components of your job aren't related to what you're applying to, but also like, what if you've had a job where you're like, I just did this, but it really does. I didn't do any training and development in this job. Do you, do you leave it? Do you take it off? Tell us what you think. Yeah, that's a great question. So first and foremost, yes, you need to have it on your resume. If it's been within the last 10 years, anything previous to 10 to 12 years, you can, you can leave off your resume, but if you don't include it, then the first question is going to come up of what did you do during that time frame, And you're going to have to answer it anyways. One of the things that I tell people, even when I'm doing consulting is that in higher ed, the resume is really crucial. 
because you can even mess up the interview a little bit, but if they go back to your resume and it's really strong, you still have the potential to get the job. In corporate, the resume solely exists to get you the interview. And so it is, it is crucial that your resume line up with what you're applying for. And so, yes, as a residence hall director or coordinator, you may have done training and development and budget and supervision and crisis management and maintenance and the 9,009 things that we did when we worked in residence life. But if the position is for a learning and development or a trainer, you need to narrow it down to the five things that really are the focal points for the job that you're applying for. And I say this quite a bit with, to, to folks when I'm doing resume critiques is, Five bullets is about enough that you need in, in describing what you do. And the first two bullets are typically metric-driven outcomes of your current role. So whether that's training or whatever the case may be. The third bullet is around an initiative that you started with a quantifiable metric result. And the fourth and fifth bullets are typically around budget and supervision because uh, any employer is going to find that if you have you know, budget and supervision experience that shows leadership. And so anything more than that, you're, you're again, sort of wasting space on the resume because the resume is there to get you the interview. And then you can expound on in the interview. It's fine in the interview to talk about, you know, beyond those responsibilities. I also dealt with crisis management and I dealt with maintenance and I dealt with uh, student conduct. And I think that that's fine because that shows sort of the breadth of the position that you had. But remember, the job of the resume is simply to get you that interview for that corporate position. Now, if you've had a position, sort of part two, Jamie, if you've had a position that really is solely focused on skills that aren't related to the job, one, contact us because we can help you sort of rephrase that a little bit. But two, really go back and think about some of the things that you did. I mean, in higher ed, every position has training. Every position has crisis. Every position has responsibilities that corporate is looking for. It's just a matter of how you talk through it. And then, you know, again, and Jamie knows this, I'm not a huge fan of cover letters, but an opportunity that exists on the cover letter is to call that out, explain what it is that you did in that position and why you think it relates. Because the first question that a, a hiring manager is going to have is what? I don't understand why this person is even applying. But if you can address that in your cover letter, it's going to get you a little bit further in the process. Thank you. I think that's super helpful. I mean, People have to exercise restraint, right? Because like part of your identity is all of those bullets, but you can share all of that in the interview. Right. All right. Well, what question do you have for me? I'm nervous. No, I think this one will be relatively easy. So, and it's, it's in the same, same vein as resume. So I've had quite a few folks that I've done consults with and folks that have actually progressed beyond the first consult is, you know, I've put my resume out there and I'm not getting any hits. What am I doing wrong? Well, that's a great question. I have two, actually, no, I have three reasons of what could be going wrong. Number one, I see people casting too wide of a net and therefore they're not really differentiating their experience in one specific area. So I spoke with someone this season who was, I was like, what do you want to do? What, you know, what, what area of corporate do you want to go into? And they were like, well, I like working with students, learning design and project management. And their resume actually reflected all three of those things. So I guess this is going to tie into my second advice. But the first is you don't necessarily just have to pick one, but your resume does need to focus on one area. 
Tom just gave great advice on what the resume should look like, but I, I would say that your resume is the biggest thing that really needs to communicate your intentions and your experience. So, you know, if you think you might want to do project management and learning design, then you should have two separate resumes, most likely. But I'd also kind of encourage you to think about like, those are kind of different, you know, and working with students, like those are three different pathways. And so, you know, I think you should think about like, how do you drive your energy? You know, do you want to work with people throughout the day? If you're a learning designer, how do you feel about working with faculty? So I think you have to really understand the role that it, you're applying to and think about whether it really is a good fit. So resume was really the second, but I incorporated in the first. The third, I just want to emphasize like the market, the job market is difficult. I have this as, as one of my questions as well. Actually, it was next. I didn't get selected for an interview. I'm clearly qualified for what could have happened. So it's very similar. And, you know, like I have to say, you know, I posted a job recently, a success coach position, and we had 250 applications in 24 hours. And we ended up closing the position after four days and we had 500 applicants. So, you know, a lot of times, like I, in the expatriates of student affairs group, I'll see people sort of really wanting to poke holes into the hiring process and make assumptions that are negative, like, oh, my, my resume didn't even get reviewed, or it was, you know, through an automated system. But like, y'all, sometimes like, there's just a lot of competition. And you just have to keep applying. And that time will come, you know, if you've, if you've had your resume reviewed and the like, your, your time will come, but it will take time. And you have to remember that you're translating or expecting people to translate a very, very different career path into a new one. And it, it will happen, especially if you've done it in your resume and such, but it's, you know, you're competing a lot of times against people who have done that exact same job. So don't be offended. Keep trying. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jamie. And I think the, the struggle is that especially, and, and I'm in the same boat, you know, I've, I've got several positions posted and we get tons of applications for them. And it's not that not everybody's qualified. It's just that there's some that are more qualified than others. And it really comes down to the networking. I can't stress enough how important it is for folks to jump on LinkedIn, find the hiring manager, find other people at that company figure out a way to have a leg up in the process. I advise all the time, reach out to people at that company on LinkedIn. They may or may not respond to you, but if they do, wow, now you've got somebody at that company that can give you some advice and maybe is even a good person that would put your name up, you know, to the HR team. You know, most of the people that I've hired in the last five months are people that have reached out to me directly because then I have some knowledge of who they are and that, that goes a long way. Yeah. You know, or, I mean, you mentioned this, you know, talking to other people at, at the company or ask any of your acquaintances if they know someone at that place. I think that's, that's all good stuff. All right. Well, I'm going to move to my other question since I kind of were, I, I guess, synergizing here yes, um, because those two went well together. This is a, this is a broad question and we are ultimately going to unpack it, I think in season two, but I get asked a lot, like, what are the positions that I might even be qualified for? 
as I think about moving higher ed adjacent or full like corporate or nonprofit? Like what do those jobs even consist of? And how do I decide which of those to apply to? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say this is the advice that I give on my initial consults. You know, I, I treat job searching like a funnel. I, I work for a sales organization. So having a funnel is, is sort of part and parcel to what I do. But first of all, just about anything that's posted out there, higher ed people have experience doing. You know, it just, it, it just is some, it just comes with the nature of the beast of working in higher education that we are tapped to do so many different things. I mean, in, in a zillion years, I never would have thought that I would work football games at a college or university. And I have, so I have that experience, right? But I, I tell people when they're building that funnel for how to do a job search, first of all, they've got to identify the areas. And, and there's multiple areas. And Alyssa went through some of these when she did her advice from a CHRO, but you are qualified to go certainly into human resources. And I know that a lot of folks really sort of latch on to learning and development because there's a natural fit for those of us coming from higher ed. You're certainly capable of going into the customer success or customer experience side of an organization. That's where I am. And everything that I do draws from my experience in higher education, whether it's customer onboarding, customer education, or relationship building. There's also the project management side of the house. Now, again, there's different types of project management, but certainly we, we manage projects in higher education. One of the areas that I think folks don't recognize is the marketing aspect. And, and, and I'm not talking about just advertising, right? Which I think a lot of us in higher ed think marketing is getting people to come to our programs. Marketing is about, in, in corporate, about lead generation, about getting new customers. But we do that, especially if you worked in admissions, you are a marketing person. And there's marketing events, which is you know how to get more customers to come to your business. If you worked in admissions or you went to NASPA and you sat at a table and hoped to get candidates to come interview with you, you've done marketing events to some extent. And so there's, there's certainly those. Now, for those of you who have more technical skills, there's also engineering type roles, learning management system administrators, which by the way, I have a position posted right now where I work if you're interested, but there's, there's technical positions as well. If you have those technical skills, I just hired somebody from from a university just recently who is going to be an integrations engineer because he had experience managing their student information system. And that's a direct correlation to working with a CRM, customer relationship management system in, in corporate. So there's, there, that's the first level, right? You've got to figure that out. And there's lots of different opportunities there. You know, the next level down, and I stole this from, from Jamie's book that she talked about is, then do you want to go into a startup? Do you want to go into a midsize? Or do you want to go into an enterprise? Once you've narrowed that down, it becomes a little bit easier to focus your, your job search and not just sort of throw that wide net that Jamie was just talking about in the last question. So you're qualified for just about anything. It's about translating those skills. And you know, one of the words that I've used a lot in my consults recently, because we talk a lot on our podcast and we I know it's talked a lot about on Facebook, particularly in some of the, the education groups that I'm a part of is, how do I talk about the transferability of my skills? And it's not the transferability of your skills. It's the translation of those skills to, high, to, to corporate or to higher ed adjacent. Because all of your skills are transferable. It's a matter of speaking the language correctly to match the job that you're looking to go to. That was fantastic. You covered all of the areas that I mentioned. The one, the one addition I would make to corporate is, and you alluded to it, but product it being the, the emphasis on the technology skill, but 
I mention product because I think that folks who have held a position where they brought on some sort of a new system to their, like, for instance, when I was overseeing clubs and orgs, like I worked really hard to kind of create the rationale and the sort of process to bring on org sync. And some people really like to kind of think through the development and rolling in of a new product. I think you probably would need some additional certification to do that, but it just really depends on the experience you had. I want to elaborate just a little bit too on higher ed adjacent positions. I have spoken with folks who were like, I didn't realize there's stuff I could do where I'm still supporting students. And that is, you know, the space that I'm in. I mean, I don't directly support students in my position, but I have folks who work for me that do. And so if you're, you're looking to work in a situation where you do directly support students in some capacity, there are a fair amount of higher ed adjacent organizations that have things like success coach roles, or there's a fair amount of career related roles that you can apply for. And actually we share a lot of those on our pivoting LinkedIn page. So I encourage you to, to jump on that, but people are often not sure of like how to even find reputable companies or companies that are adjacent. And I am going to share that on a blog post, but two quick go-tos I, or three, I guess would recommend is GSV has a list of the top 50 companies that they reviewed this year to work for. The one I work for is on it. So I'm psyched about that. There's also EdSurge and EduCause. They both share both K through 12 and higher ed positions. So check those out. And if you've had any K through 12 experience, there's a fair, fair chance that you would also qualify for positions for them. And, and even if you don't, you might qualify as well, but obviously you just wouldn't be quite as competitive. All right. So my next question, Tom. Oh, no, no, no. This is my turn. I get to ask you. Oh, is it really? Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, go, go. <laughs> You've already I put me on the spot a couple times. It's my turn. I know. <laughs> so this one I saw in the expats group, and I'm going to, I wanted to surface it because I, I, I think it's really important that folks sort of hear this. Jamie, are you familiar with Glassdoor? I am, yes. Great. Well, this is a great question. So how much should I rely on Glassdoor reviews of a company before I accept or reject an offer? That is a great question. It's funny. I saw that too, and I almost responded, but I don't know why I didn't. But I, I look at Glassdoor as a component of my consideration, but there, I do so with like a pretty big grain of salt because two reasons. One, I mean, generally speaking, it's people who are disgruntled, who are like mostly motivated to go on there and leave a review. I have had circumstances where employers have, have encouraged us to go on and leave reviews. And so you do then maybe see like a, a wider spectrum, but like the most motivated people are going to hop on there. Or sorry, the most motivated people to hop on there are going to be the ones that are pissed off. Similarly to like my course evaluations when I was a faculty member at USC, like, you know, what, who's going to take the time to do it? The ones that are like, this class was too much work for me. So I will say that, but I also encourage people as you're looking, it really does matter what position the people held because the organization can differ a fair amount like so 
I've seen in companies that I've looked at that those that were in sales positions, their reviews were a lot lower than a lot of the other positions. So I really, I think that you should take that into deep consideration what the positions are. But at the end of the day, if you're approaching being a finalist in a review process, first of all, cast a wide net, you know, less wide than what we were just talking about, but a focused net, because you don't want to like not apply for a job before it's even, you know, make a decision before there's no decision to be made. So apply. But then if you get to the space where you're a finalist and you're really thinking, do I want, do I want this company? You need to gather a variety of information. One of the ones you need to gather is the the financial security of the company. And I look on Crunchbase to see how the company is doing financially compared to other companies. I look on Glassdoor, of course, but I will insist, like, I want to talk to people who I would work with. And we're going to talk about this coming up, but like every company's hiring process is, is pretty different. But if they really want you, they they will need to let you make sure this is a fit for you. So I've had a hiring process actually recently where I was like, well, I want to talk to someone about the cultural climate of the organization. So who can I talk to there? And they've been very gracious to let me talk to, to folks working there. So that was a long answer, but I, I think it should be part of a big picture and with a very big grain of salt. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I think Glassdoor is sort of a Yelp for, for companies, right? And the only time I ever go on Yelp is when I've had bad food or bad service, not when I've had great service. And so I agree with Jamie. And if it's something that you really are alarmed by, if you as you come to being a finalist for the role, you can ask that question. You know, I'm I've noticed or I've done my research and I've seen this and I wanted to see if you could address that in terms of the reality of the situation. I I think that that's fair game for an interview process. Agreed. Speaking of interview process, this wasn't originally my next question, but it just flows nicely. We had a question as well from a listener who has actually been through a few different hiring processes and they wanted us to talk about the differences between what a traditional campus-based hiring process would look like and what corporate hiring processes look like. And, you know, certainly mentioned the fact that the process seems less structured and a quick pace. Can you talk about what you know of the differences? And I suspect, you know, our experiences will, will be a bit different, but, but yeah, what do you think, Tom? What have, what have you seen? Yeah, well, I think you all know that, you know, when you work, when you interview for higher education and particularly in student affairs, it's a very, it's, it's typically a long process, right? You know, you, you apply, if it's a state institution, they have to keep it open for a certain amount of, of days or weeks due to state requirements. Then you get the initial potential screening and interview, and then you have a search committee that interviews you, and then they bring you to campus and you're spending half to a full to even more than a full day interviewing, you may have to do a presentation, you meet with students, you meet with, you know, in higher ed, we meet with every single stakeholder that could possibly interact with us when we potentially get the job. At least where I'm at and, and, and what I've heard from others, for those going into corporate, and Jamie, I'll be interested to hear what you say about higher ed adjacent, it's not that way at all. First of all, you apply, you get an HR screening. We do at, at, at the company I work for, we do use 
an assessment tool that we ask folks to take. It's a cognitive and behavioral assessment tool that allows us to sort of determine whether or not you have the, the unique skill set to, to be a part of individual teams. And each team at my company has a different thing that they're looking for. It's not a one-size-fits-all assessment. Then you interview with a senior manager and then a director, and they're usually 30-minute interviews. And I will tell you, we've had people that have gone from application to hire in less than a week. And then we also expect a relatively quick start time. So unlike in higher ed, where I would always give four, six weeks notice because I wanted to make sure that I provided a transition binder and I made sure that my students were, were going to be okay when I left. When I'm hiring somebody, even from higher ed, I need somebody to start right away. I have an immediate need. And so if you can't start in two weeks, then I'm probably going to say, okay, well, then I'm going to need to look for somebody else. And so that's, that's a bit of a change, just the, the pace of hiring. And I typically hire for multiple positions at a time. So, you know, when I was working in higher ed, it was one assistant dean, one dean, one director of residence life. When I'm hiring at the company I'm at now, it's five onboarding managers, five learning and development managers, because I get incremental headcount each month to support the business. And so at that point, I need to hire and I need to hire quickly because one, if I don't hire quickly, I might lose that headcount. And two, I've got new customers coming in on a regular basis and I need to be able to support. So it's faster, it's quicker. There's more positions typically launched at the same time. So it's quite a bit different and, 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 and quite a bit faster. The types of questions sometimes are similar, typically more results driven than responsibility driven. We, we've got your resume, so we don't need a repeat of the resume, but it, it's going to be a little bit about, you know, what you've accomplished and then, you know, what, what cultural ad you're going to bring to the organization. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree on the pace. I have seen a much faster pace. And also, I would agree on the length of the interviews, which, which I've actually struggled with in hiring. I mean, I, well, especially too, I have always been remote in the position I'm in currently. And I, I, I do think that the sort of day and a half exposure to candidates really does help you get a very good idea of, of their candidacy and, and sort of fit in the organization. But this happened recently too for that success coach position. I posted and said like, this is for an immediate opening. And people were pretty taken aback by the fact that like there was an immediate, an almost immediate rejection or they were invited to record a response to two interview questions within 24 hours. There was a, a where there's definitely some emotions around that time period for the turnaround. But again, this is 24 hours. And someone said, well, if the organization is like that, I'm not really sure if I want to work there. And it's like, you know, that's a fair point. The organizations do move quickly. And, you know, if I was asking people to respond to like 10 to 15 questions and record themselves, I, I think that might be a little too much, but two, I think is, is reasonable. Again, fast pace. The Interesting thing, though, that I've experienced either in my own organization or through search processes that I've been in is they're sometimes iterative, meaning generally in a campus-based search, I could say what's the process, and they've like charted out the exact timeline and what the committee is going to be because they're pretty much like doing what they did the last time they recruited. 
you know, there's the open forum and a presentation. And really the main thing that changes is the content of the presentation and the schedule. But I, I mean, I had an interview process where the recruiter was honest with me and said, you know, we're not really sure who you're going to meet with next because, you know, they are just seeing how this was a, an outside recruiter, how each candidate like sort of fits in. And then even I was one of two and the hiring manager couldn't decide. So they, they decided in that moment that the board of directors needed to decide. So it can, it, it can be iterative and it can change. And it, that is frustrating for candidates. The other thing is I've seen a lot more stalls or even cancellations of positions. So, you know, we can say like, we're looking to hire immediately and we really are, but like something happens tomorrow and it's taking away our attention. And then all of a sudden, it's like actually taking three weeks to do the hiring, especially for startups. Like we're working on a, with a lean team usually, and sometimes things can stall out. So that can be frustrating because there are changes of priority. I have a very good friend who the posi- a position was temporarily put on hold because the hiring manager left. And they wanted the new one to get to select them. And, and he got looped back in as soon as, as soon as the new one was, was picked. But that's a lot more common that I've seen in corporate than in higher ed. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely for sure. I, I have definitely noticed, even in, in the positions that I've, I've posted in my org, just a little bit of a delay. Sometimes I had a hiring manager that went out ill for two weeks and we had to put everything on hold until he came back. And so it definitely happened. Okay, Jamie, I have two more questions that I want you to address. The first one is what, and this came from one of our, our Facebook friends, April, who is also a good friend of a good friend of mine from my days in orientation. What was your biggest challenge when leaving higher education? My biggest challenge was truthfully that I really had built my personal identity around being a student affairs professional working directly with students on a college campus. And I didn't really know how much I had done that as far as the sort of mental defining until I found myself you know, working from home and I'm adjacent to higher ed. I'm, I was, I'm working directly with campus partners. We're supporting students. But for the first six months of my position, I was, I, I was really enjoying what I was doing, but concurrently, like, I don't know, this isn't, this isn't where, I don't know if this is where I'm meant to be. And I realized that was because that was the, the story and the script that I came into this adjacent role with because I mean I was on in campus-based positions for like 18 years or something and got a degree in higher ed and a doctorate in ed leadership you know so it was it was really a mental change and and mixed in with that yeah that I I still miss you know students I talked about that in my episode but just just oh Tom I know he's going to use this just you know the hubbub of, of campuses, you know, there is a thing like it just you're like, yeah, this is where I want to be. And I still feel that when I go on college campuses, and I still like I'm like, should I come back to this? 
so I'd say, you know, sort of both of those together while one certainly feeds, feeds the other. Cause I think, you know, there's some positions in my company who actually sometimes have an office on the college campus. And I feel like that would probably feel more normal for me. I don't think the role is necessarily the best fit, but, but anyway, that's, that's what I'd say is the most difficult. And, you know, in retrospect, it was, it's weird because like I'm working from home, I'm doing a job that I love on a schedule that works for me. I'm working with great people. So it, there wasn't really anything technically not a fit. It was just, I needed, I needed to adjust my identity to be broader and understand that I was making a, a broader impact and that this, this schedule and sort of circumstance really works for me as a person. Yeah, I would, I would agree for sure. The hubbub of the college <laughs> is something that I miss, you know, and I, I will admit I worked on, on college campuses that had pretty amazing athletic programs. And I loved coming to campus on a Saturday on a college football day, or, you know, going to a basketball game at the conclusion of the day. I loved that. I loved the pep rally excitement, the, the school colors, the school spirit, the the, the, everything that sort of encaptures what it meant to be a Trojan or what it meant to be a Sun Devil or what it meant to be a Horn Frog. I loved that. But for me, the biggest challenge ultimately was imposter syndrome. It was when I showed up to work at a corporate company at, at you know, and I, I was sort of new. Yes, all the skills transferred and and certainly I knew I could do the job, but there was this sense that I didn't fit in because one, I didn't have the same background as everybody else in the office. And two, that I didn't speak the right lingo. And, and three, that I was doing something that I wasn't really qualified to do. Even though I completely was qualified to do it, I just felt sort of awkward. And I would go to meetings in those first couple of days and think, what have I gotten myself into? And ultimately, it all worked out, right? I think we all have imposter syndrome when we first start a new, a new phase of our career. But similar to you, Jamie, my identity was wrapped up in being a higher education profession. I said this in my episode, I can quote student development theory from memory. I could map programmatic initiatives to student development theory in my sleep. And no longer was I, one, needing to do that, or two, should do that. And so there was a little bit of, I spent all these years getting these three degrees in education. And now, even though I'm working in a in a sector of, or a, a portion of a business that is education, there was this sense of like, whoa, what have I done? What, do I, what am I doing? And so the imposter syndrome was definitely there. And, and again, what I tell people all the time is once you get through that, once you make the connection, you're fine. And for me, the connection that I needed to make was how do I just translate in my own head how this relates to higher ed? For example, the CRM is essentially the student information system. Once I started to do that, I was fine, but it took me a little bit to do that. And, I, you know, had I not been able to do that quickly, I, I, I would have, I don't know if I would have been as successful as I think I am now. Yeah, I, I, I had a similar experience. And one of the things I would say is really, it's, it's just kind of just like, I used to say this to RAs when they were new, you kind of have to fake it to make it because you do feel like oh my gosh, do they know that like, I've never done this exact thing before? <laughs> like, you know, you bring related experience, but you know, they, especially if you're working with customers in any capacity, they, they expect that, you know, your stuff. And so 
you have to have faith in the fact that you were hired for a reason and then just fake your confidence from there and eventually it aligns. Well, my next question is a really biggie and I do think that probably we should do an episode just on this, but what do you think? Maybe you could just touch on the key things you should consider asking for when you're negotiating an offer. It's funny because I had that same question for you on my list. You know, this one's a challenge, right? Because negotiation is tough no matter what you go into. I mean, when I went into higher ed, there was certainly never a class that taught me how to negotiate. And God love the Career Center at Arizona State, but I, one, never visited it. And two, not sure that they could have helped me uh, understand how to negotiate for higher ed, even though they all worked in higher ed. I think it depends, you know, ultimately on the type of company you're going to work for. Again, sort of one of the things that Jamie talked about in her podcast early on was, you know, the startup versus the, you know, mid-market type company versus the enterprise company. You have to be realistic. You know, if you're going to a startup asking for, you know, stock in the company is probably not realistic because they're probably not a public company at that point. But I do think that one, you should do your research on the role and the salary sort of one nationally that that role typically gets, as well as locally, what we pay in Boston might be very different than what we pay in Austin. And so it's important to make sure that you're being conscious of of sort of the, the cost of living in the areas that you're applying for. And so certainly one, of course, making sure that you're, you're, you're thinking about the salary Two. Certainly the, the, the benefits package is something to make sure that you're looking at that may not be completely negotiable uh, in terms of the, you know, what they have for health insurance and 401k and things like that. But there may be some things in the benefits package that you can negotiate. And then three is equity. Equity is not something that we talk about in higher ed. None of us co-own the university. Well, unless, you know, we live in a state that we pay taxes, you know, for that to that university. But we don't really get equity at the university or the, or the college that we're working for. And, and there is that potential, even at the startup, to get equity. And you should ask that question or at least find out what the process for equity is. If it's a public company, like the company I work for is a public company, we offer stock or shares upon hire to all of our employees. And so that's something that you should talk about as well. And then finally, you should talk about the bonus options. Again, not something that we get a lot of in higher education, but most corporations are going to do a base plus bonus or base plus commission. And you need to understand what that is and negotiate appropriately based on that. If you're working in a sales organization or a customer success organization, your base might be low and your commission might be high. And while that's different for most of us, because it's not guaranteed money, the harder you drive, the harder you go, the more money you have, you know, the potential to earn. If you're in a set where it's a a base plus a percentage of your base that equals your bonus, see if there's negotiation for that as well. So those are the things that that I think you should be sort of thinking about as you go into the process. More and more today, because of the pandemic, the other thing to really think about and negotiate is your location. You know, clearly a lot of offices have actual physical spaces, but more and more we're seeing remote opportunities. And so whether that's fully remote or hybrid remote, meaning you go in a couple of days a week or you have to travel to that main office a couple of times a year, really think about what that looks like. And then the other, the sort of the last piece of that is, and I think, again, this was really exposed during the pandemic, is what are the hours 
So I, for example, employ somebody on the West Coast that works, that works East Coast hours. I employ somebody on the East Coast that works UK hours. One, because we have customers everywhere, but two, because that was their interest. And also because that gives them some flexibility, particularly during the pandemic, because they had childcare or they had other things that they needed to take care of. And so I was fine with, hey, let's negotiate your hours. As long as you're working the you know eight hours a day, then I don't really care when you're working those eight hours a day. So you know, negotiate those things, which are not things that I think prior to the pandemic that were really exposed as much as they are now. So Jamie, did that answer the full question or was there another part of it? No, I think that was great. Again, I think we could do our own, an, an episode just on some of this because I've seen some do's and don'ts that I would I would offer. But the few things I would add just briefly would be sometimes there's some kind of cool perks that are offered that are more meaningful than others, depending on where you live and such. But in addition to hours, I would say flexibility, especially if you're working from home, particularly because it's like, well, do you expect me to be sat in my desk from nine to five? Or, you know, is there flexibility? Usually there is. Internet is sometimes paid for. Cell phones are sometimes paid for. Gym memberships are paid for. They are at mine. We get money toward our gym membership. And sometimes even like discounts on, on public travel. I don't live in New York, but my company's main office is out of New York and they have some sort of a deal with like the subway system there that they give discounts to, to employees. So there's some pretty cool perks. And also PTO is sometimes negotiable, which is a weird, was, was a weird thing to me when I came in. I think more, more than likely now we see like it's standard, but I have seen that be negotiable more than I thought. The last thing I will say, though, is really the biggest don't that I've seen is people not negotiating at all. Like hiring managers expect, I mean, occasionally they'll be direct with you, right? And say like the position starting at 85, I, I can't go higher, period. I have some positions that applies to because our budget is based off of the university's budget and we're trying to keep the cost of it higher ed of education lower so like we're capped but even then we assume a candidate is going to negotiate so we have to allow room for that but I have had a fair amount of people not negotiate at all and I can't tell them like you should ask me for more but I do have to be prepared in case they do so always negotiate um, but we'll have more of a session on like, how do you do that? What does that look like? Because I don't feel comfortable. A lot of, especially women are are historically known for not negotiating. So we got to have a juicy negotiation session and also like dig into like bonuses and because look, and, and equity, like, what does that really mean? Because I didn't know, but I know now. And let me tell you, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pay off my student loans probably soon because yeah. of some of that. So yeah, it's a completely different world. Okay, Jamie, I have one more question for you, and it's sort of the biggest one. I've been saving it for the end, and if you want me to, to co-answer it with you, I can. Why did you leave higher ed, and do you miss it? Well, I left campus-based positions really not to, I was not looking to leave a campus-based position, but I saw this opportunity and it was at a time when I really didn't, I had been a faculty member for two years and knew, well, actually for more than that, but full-time at USC for two years. And I knew that wasn't a fit for me. And I had applied to and looked at a ton of student affairs positions, but I felt I had like grown so much when it comes to like 
online learning and technology and teaching that that whole like aspect of of my knowledge bank and experience bank wouldn't have been leveraged in most of the student affairs jobs that I was looking at and and then this one just kind of was like that's something different I just want to do something different and you know I do acknowledge a lot of people and we've had guests on the show that like you can tell they were they wanted to leave and get out of higher ed But for me, I mean, I'm still in higher ed, but like, I didn't really, I wasn't sure that not being in a campus position was a base position was for me. And, you know, Tom and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, we, we speak to a fair amount of newer professionals who are like, that's it. Or even people have literally just finished their master's program and they're very quickly like, this is not the field for me. And we'll, we, I mean, I'm, who am I to question that necessarily? But, you know, I made this decision to do something different after 20 years and, and a lot of different positions. And some of it was, you know, I wanted to make sure I could go back if I wanted to. And did I have enough under my belt to be able to, to go back and still look relevant? But I, you know, I oftentimes will see new professionals and think, you know, maybe it'd be good to like, just try a different job or try a different university. Because I mean, for me, like I was at one job for 10 months and I, and I, well, actually I was at another one for only 11 months, but after one month I knew like this was not a fit for me. And, and so the context, the job itself, as well as the institution can substantially affect your, your satisfaction. So you know, I mean, if if you know, you know, that's fine. But I, I'm someone that likes to make like pretty educated decisions. And I, I'd encourage people to to try a couple of positions in, in campus-based roles before leaving. But that's just kind of my perspective. And yet, you know, here I am like encouraging people to think about leaving education or at least campus-based <laughs> education. So so I don't know. I, I'm here to give advice on either way, but for for me, it was really going towards something different. And I, I think for you, it was similar, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I like you. I spent 20 years in higher education and then student affairs roles, sort of quote unquote, climbing my way up. And I loved every minute of it. You know, I recognized fully that I was not paid what I was worth, and that I had you know tons of responsibility. Even, you know, back in the early days when I was a residence life coordinator right out of graduate school and I'm, you know, the lead campus crisis person for the evening, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to put on somebody who is 23 years old shoulders, but I loved every minute of it. I I remember, you know, running orientation programs at USC and, and even though I was exhausted and my feet hurt and I quote unquote couldn't wait for the summer to be over, I loved it. And when I left higher ed, it was you know, it was, it was a big change for me. And it's part of the reason that I think I'm doing the podcast, you know, one to, to help folks make that, make that same pivot, but also because it connects me to higher ed still a little bit, but I I left because the next position for me was either a Dean or a vice president. And that's not something I wanted to do. And it's funny because I think I thought I wanted to do that when I first started, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a vice president for student affairs someday, but it became really really apparent that that was not what I wanted to do. I went into the field of of student affairs because of student development. I loved that aspect of of, of student affairs, the programmatic responsibilities that we had to help students with leadership and growth. 
sort of becoming members of society. And I don't think a vice president for student affairs always gets to do that, you know, particularly nowadays where there's much more legal implications of being a vice chancellor, a vice president. There's, you know, new directives that come out from federal, state, and local governments all the time. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, And so either it was stay where I was, leave or move up into a role that I didn't think I was going to really enjoy. And so I made the, I made the pivot. And the good news is the things that I do in my current role as a vice president allow me to still watch the growth of our customers, watch how they have success and, and, and still do that development work just in a different, different way. Yeah. The, the other thing too, that I, I had forgotten about, cause I, I left student affairs to transition to the faculty world, but this kind of tags on to your, your comment about you didn't want to be a vice president. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate to say this, but, you know, I, I left student affairs based positions because I had my eldest daughter and I, I really don't think that the, the very sort of restrictive nine to five face-to-face plus events on the nights and weekends. I just really don't think that that's conducive to at least the kind of parenting that I I wanted to do. And it's disappointing, but I'm hoping that we see some adjustment after COVID with folks being able to have some more flexibility. But I, I also see a lot of campuses just going back to the way that things things used to be. So yeah, well, those were all of my questions and it sounds like you got through yours, Tom. So we want to leave our listeners with a couple things. One, I wanted to just foreshadow a little bit of what's coming up next season. And Tom is then going to do a little call out for all of you listening, but we're going to be featuring more professionals on the podcast, which Tom will talk about folks that have made the pivot from campus-based positions to Uh, something else. We are in the works. I've got my like fingers tapping. We've invited to do a very cool crossover podcast. We're not going to say anything more about that because it's like super early stages, but we're really excited about that. And I think we'll also be digging into more topical based podcasts. So for instance, we'll do like an entire podcast about negotiation and preparing for the job search and the like. I would also like to like do deep dives on like learning and development since that's something people are really interested in. And also I want to make sure we're going to have networking has been mentioned a lot in our episodes and Tom mentioned it today as being very important. But I also want to honor that sometimes networking, if you're from a historically marginalized background, can feel different. And I want to make sure that we honor that and give those folks some strategies to to network. So we'll we'll have an episode that focuses on that. So Tom, tell us, tell the listeners what our request is. Yeah, my so, dog wants to know that request too. I don't know if you can all hear her, but <laughs> she wants to know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we've gained another listener who speaks dog. So yeah, there's two things. One, as Jamie said, you know, we're we're going to continue to profile folks who've made the pivot. I do want to let you know that as you heard in our last week's episode that we are going to look beyond higher education and sort of look at education more holistically. And so as we look at not just higher education, but also K through 12, 
for those of you out there who either are teachers in our elementary and secondary schools or know of teachers who are interested, please encourage them to listen as we'll be profiling, again, education more broadly. And then secondly, have you made a pivot? Is there someone out there that's made a pivot and perhaps this podcast helped you either A, make the pivot or, or B, gave you some great advice to get you ready to make that pivot? We would love to hear from you and we would love to welcome you onto the show. So if you are interested and have made the pivot recently, particularly in the last six to eight months, please reach out to us at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com. And we'd love to feature you in our season two as we profile folks who have potentially made that pivot or have made that pivot in the last couple of months. So just let us know and, and, and we'll welcome you to the show. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for following us this season. If you've made it to this 20th final episode, we appreciate that you've been along the ride with us. And if you have any ideas of what you would like us to focus on next season, let us know as well. Tom and I are so grateful for the folks that have let us know that this is working for them. And it's been a great experience. And we look forward to coming back at you with season two. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. As always, thank you to our guests for joining us. Additionally, special thanks to our sound editor, John Alexander. We spend one third of our life at work. It should be something we believe in and have a passion for. It's okay if that passion changes. If you are thinking about pivoting out of education or know someone who is, visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com for advice, testimonials, and blog articles. Have advice to share or would like a private consultation? Contact Jamie or Tom via the website or at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com.